Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to Episode 8, The Miyazawa Murders. In the year 2000, the Miyazawa family was brutally murdered in their Tokyo home. Japan is a country where mass homicides are very rare. The cold-blooded slaughter of Mikio, Yasuko, and their children, 8-year-old Nina and 6-year-old Rei, who have been described as a typical Japanese family, shocked the nation to its core. It still does. The nighttime home invasion, the merciless slaughter of the family, including young children, the way the criminal uh, hung out at the house uh, and then just vanished into thin air. Uh, after leaving several pieces of evidence in the house nonchalantly, uh, also baffling. And then this massive decades-long investigation, which has yielded uh, little. It, it makes it uh, one of the most outstanding and heinous crimes in Japan. I, I, uh, I, I don't want to sensationalize this at all, but it, it's really some, something shocking that, that stood out and, and shocked the nation. Over 200,000 members of law enforcement have touched this case. That's right. I said more than 200,000 investigators over the last two decades have worked on this case. Given those numbers, I thought the odds would be pretty good of securing an interview with someone from the Tokyo Police Department. This was something I talked with Tim about. Tim Horniak, and I'm a freelance uh, journalist and free, freelance writer based in Tokyo. But uh, yeah, I've been living in, in Japan for um, 18 years, all told. Tim literally laughed when I asked him if he was surprised that I still haven't received any response to my multiple interview requests. So you're not surprised that the Tokyo Metro Police didn't get back to me with my <laughs> not at all. No, no, not at all. <laughs> they would have because you're you're calling from outside of the press club system. First of all, it's it's quite difficult for foreign reporters to get into the press club system. For decades, they were completely banned. So they would have press conferences that were only open to members of the press club system at whatever government institution, say like the uh, justice ministry or whatnot. And I remember once when I was working as a journalist for IDG News, I was uh, working on a story about uh, cybercrime that occurred in Japan. And so I wanted to confirm the facts of the case. So I, and I called up a police station uh, in Yokohama and they're like, who, who are you? You're with what organization? What in the United States? What? What? And they basically treated me like I just stepped out of a UFO. And uh, it's because I wasn't part of the press club system. I wasn't going through the motions, that they, all the normal channels they expect. And uh, I didn't get very far with my request. So I'm not surprised to hear that they didn't respond to you. 
As a boots-on-the-ground journalist, Tim will help provide context to this investigation and also cultural insights, too. For example, how information is disseminated to the media. The way that um, news works in Japan is um, a very controlled system of information over there. Some people have called it a sort of media cartel or information cartel system. So typically uh, they use what they call press clubs or kisha krabu in Japanese. So this involves some um, having reporters from major uh, news outlets stationed within government institutions. For example, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government, Tokyo City Hall. Tokyo is a, is a prefecture, that means like a state. So the state government would have its own uh, press club. Same thing with the central government, like the, the parliament of Japan has its own press club. So the police agency uh, would have its own press club, etc. These are locations in these government institutions where reporters are meant to gather and receive official press Briefings. They also go out and um, try to get information from from government officials. In comparison with the West, it's a much more tightly controlled flow of information from top to bottom. A workaround to this tightly controlled media system is through the tabloids. There is a very colorful tabloid press industry in Japan. You know, old school pulp magazine tabloid magazines in Japan often break stories that the mainstream press is not uh, prepared to touch. So they may involve, you know, uh, political scandals or celebrities doing wrong. And sometimes, often, those stories, once they're out in the open, the mainstream press is like, okay, now we can talk about this and we can attribute it to the mainstream, uh, to the rather the tabloid that uh, broke the case, we can attribute it to them. So now we can talk about it, except it's acceptable to us. So with the media system there, I think there's less room for independent investigation and independent journalism. Another very obvious difference between Japan and the United States is gun laws and how those laws affect crime. I am not here to idealize or romanticize Japan because Japan has its own set of issues. It's a very safe country, generally speaking, among the reasons, not least of which is the is the um, restrictions on uh, firearms there. As you know, um, <laughs> compared to the United States, it's like, it's unbelievable. The number of firearm-based uh, fatalities in Japan per year can be uh, counted with the fingers of one hand often. I think last year there was only one or two. And so firearms are, are very restricted there. And that, that's one reason for um, the, the uh, sense of safety. Tim says that mass murders, although rare, still happen. There's not a lot of crimes like this in Japan, right? There's, I mean, even without the, the guns and just serial killers are not prevalent in Japan as they are in the United States, I'm assuming. That's right. I would say, generally speaking, uh, they are not. What uh, we do get in Japan uh, when when violence does occur, uh, you know, homicides, apart from the gang-related settling of accounts, uh, it would be uh, knife attacks by deranged people. There was one just uh, two days ago in Tokyo, in the popular Shibuya district of Tokyo, a young girl who uh, was so Obviously, I don't know what mental state she was in, but um, she was she had completely fallen out with her mother, I think, over an argument about going to cram school. A lot of young Japanese people go to cram school, which is like an extra school on top of their regular school that they have to attend to, like, pass the uh, exam to get into the next level of schooling. So these kids 
not only go to school and have homework, but then, oh, on the weekend, the weekend comes, they got to go to cram school. How's that for, for a young uh, childhood uh, experience? So anyway, well, apparently she didn't... That you, I'm glad that you said that because in the, the little four-page document that the police put out, it said that the mother ran a cram school in her home. There you home. go. Yeah, that's how common they are. This random, this random victim of a crime is also running, was also running a, cr- a cram school. And so they are part of the uh, educational process there. And this this uh, perpetrator of the crime in Tokyo that I just talked about apparently didn't want to go anymore. Uh, she uh, fell out with her mother. She wanted to kill her mother. But before doing that, she wanted to practice on random people. So she chose a woman and her daughter in Shibuya, Tokyo, uh, stabbed them with uh, with a knife. So this kind of thing does happen sometimes. There are also random attracts, attacks on you know trains sometimes, this sort of thing. So um, the fact that the Setagaya murder was a knife crime, uh, most of it, uh, is in, in keeping with some of these other heinous attacks. Which brings us back to the Miyazawa family. Tim, like many in the country who were around on December 31st, 2000, remembers exactly where he was when news broke that an entire family had been murdered in their home. Tim lived in the Satagaya area and says 22 years later, the house where those murders occurred still sits empty. In most cases, the crime scene cannot be preserved like that. But in this case, it, it has been preserved. I mean, that's got to just be like a constant reminder to the police exactly. that you haven't done your job and to the community that this has never been solved and there's a killer walking amongst us. Yes. And it would not, it would not surprise me if uh, the police held ceremonies there every year to uh, remember the crime, to re-pledge their commitment to solving the crime and to address these spirits of the victims in Japan. It's uh, it's common for uh, bereaved people uh, at funerals, for example, and at, at memorial events to directly address and speak to the spirits of uh, deceased people. People who are not Japanese, if they see this, it may feel a bit odd, That, uh, but it, it is a common practice there. So I, I've never seen video of that, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if the police officials do that and they go to the house and they, they atone for, for failing to <clears throat> solve the crime uh, so far to, to recommit to, to cracking the case. More after a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Miyazawas, then it was Mikio and Yasuko, moved to their home in Setagaya in 1990. Now, Tokyo is made up of 23 cities, or wards as they're called. And Setagaya is one such ward, and Tim lived there in 2000. Setagaya is one of the most populous uh, municipalities in Japan, and one of the the most prosperous as well. So it it would attract people like the Miyazawa family, and um, it's a lovely place to live. The, there is inequality in Japan, absolutely. Uh, there are rich and poor neighborhoods in Japan, yes, but perhaps the division 
between those social strata is not as stark as it is in uh, in other uh, countries. So that's why um, there's less of a, sort of a bad neighborhood feel uh, sometimes compared to you know good, better neighborhoods where it's safer. So when you when you see this kind of crime anywhere, it's shocking, of course. But this happened in a, in an affluent uh, community in Tokyo. Mikio Miyazawa worked for a London-based marketing firm, and Yasuko was a teacher. When the Miyazawas moved to Setagaya in 1990, they were a young couple surrounded by over 200 family residences. The Senkawa River was really close to their home, and there was a park that was even closer. The Miyazawa's home was so close to the Sashiguya Park that the back of their house actually butted up against the park's clear wire fence. So the manicured pathway of the park was visible, as was the cute little play structure called Choo Choo Train Park, which was also within the large skate park. At the time, it was an ideal place to raise a family. In fact, Yasuko's sister, her family, and their mother lived next door. Now, I have to set this up properly because when you're thinking live next door, you might not realize that it was a unique living situation. So the Miyazawa's residence from the outside appears to be one big two-story home. But it was actually two distinct residences and an interior wall split the homes in two. So sort of like a townhouse. The Miyazawa's owned one separate residence and then the other one belonged to Yasuko's older sister, Anne. Now, Anne and her family lived abroad most of the time, and their mother, Haruko, lived at Anne's place right next door full-time, which turned out to be kind of convenient for Yasuko, who taught what's called a cram school. So she would take students next door at her sister's place because, as I said, they were abroad most of the time. A decade came and went, and by the end of the year 2000, a lot had changed, not just for the Miyazawas, but also their neighborhood— Mikio and Yasuko now had two children, eight-year-old Nina, who was in the second grade at her public school, and then her little brother, Ray, who was six. He was in kindergarten. The once-flourishing neighborhood with 200 residents had changed, too. It actually had dwindled to just four. Two of those four residences belonged to the Miyazawas and her sister Anne's home. It's unclear if the Miyazawas were aware of the city's long-term plan of expanding Sashaguya Park when they moved there in 1990. But what happened was the skate park was so popular that the city had been busy over the last 10 years. They actually had bought up most of the homes surrounding the Miyazawas for a planned expansion of the park. The Miyazawas were slow to move because they worried about how it might impact their children. But despite their misgivings about uprooting their family, the Miyazawas and then Yasuko's sister's family, like their neighbors, had already sold their land to the city. They were planning to move in the next few months. But tragically, they never got the chance. The day of December 30th, 2000 was a busy one. The Miyazawa family returned home from shopping at around 6.30 that night. It must have felt really comforting after a hectic day of pre-holiday shopping to sort of tuck in for the night. It was a chilly evening, and the family settled down to enjoy a quiet dinner at home ahead of the big New Year's Eve celebration the following day. At around 7 o'clock that night, Yasuko's mom, Haruko, remember, she lived next door. She called and asked if Nina and Ray wanted to come over and watch a little bit of TV with Grandma. Ray stayed at home. But Nina went over and spent some quality time with Grandma. 
She came back home at around 9.30 that night, and that was the last time anyone saw a member of the Miyazawa family alive again. The following morning at around 10.30, Haruko calls her daughter, Yusuko, next door, no doubt excited to chat about their family plans for the New Year's Eve celebration. The end of the year is a highly significant event in Japan. It's a chance to celebrate a fresh start and welcome new possibilities. You can imagine Haruko's puzzlement as she tries to work out why her daughter's phone isn't ringing through. It's not even connecting, which was strange. That had never happened before. But that's one of the many wonderful perks about grandma living next door. Haruko could just walk right over, which is exactly what she did. Haruko knocks at the door a few times, no response. She tries a more urgent knocking. Still, no one arrives to greet her and there's no movement coming from inside the home. Haruko brought out her spare key to her daughter's home and having given up on the knocking, slides that key into the lock, twists the knob and pushes the door open. Now one can imagine Haruko at that open door. Did she pause for just a few seconds, hoping her grandchildren would come flying toward her, excited about the day's New Year's Eve celebration. But what greets Haruko instead is a preternatural silence, jarring her senses. It's the kind of silence that had to have given Haruko a sinking feeling as she entered the home, suddenly unsure of what she might find. Haruko's fear metastasized into terror as she sees the body of her son-in-law, 44-year-old Mikio, slumped on the floor, slash marks on his wrists and hands, blood everywhere. Naruko leans into Mikio, pleading for a pulse. Nothing. Where was her daughter, Yasuko? Where are her grandchildren, Nina and Ray? Knowing that there's nothing she can do for Mikio, a mother's steel pushes her feet forward up the staircase, the push and pull within her very being, wanting to find her daughter and grandchildren alive but no doubt the foreboding realization that with each step up that staircase in a house now filled with a terrible quiet that should have been alive with the sounds of a young family, each step that Haruko takes is inching her closer to death. At the top of the stairs, Haruko was confronted with the incomprehensible Yasuko. Beside her lies Nina her eight-year-old granddaughter crumpled and bloodied in the fetal position next to her mother. Both had been stabbed viciously. Haruko rushes to them, not thinking about the forensics as she kneels down beside her daughter and granddaughter, desperate to find a pulse, despite all the wounds, all the blood. Even if it was just a fleeting sign of life, it would be something to hold on to. There was nothing. Haruko would leave her daughter Yasuko and granddaughter Nina searching for little Ray. She walked down the hallway into Ray's bedroom and there she found his body. It would be determined later that the little boy had died from asphyxiation. Stained red with the blood of her family, Haruko called the police. Police arrived at the family home, now a crime scene on New Year's Eve morning. Tim says it didn't take long for news to spread that an entire family had been annihilated. At the time, I was working at a Japanese news agency as an editor. And um, yeah, this story broke. Uh, and it was, it was very shocking. 
The murders were shocking, but as the details of the crime trickled out, fear gripped the country. The killer was brazen. He had left no shortage of physical evidence behind, which helped investigators put together a timeline for what happened after Nina came home from watching TV with her grandmother next door. Obviously, police haven't released every detail related to this case. And to this day, the exact point of entry into the Miyazawa home is still uncertain. But the presiding theory is that the perpetrator climbed up one of the tall trees in the Miyazawa's backyard. If you'll recall, the back of their house faced the skate park and was separated by a wire fence. The evidence left behind supports this theory. Basically, police could clearly see the Miyazawa's second floor bathroom window was open, the screen had been removed, and it was found lying on the ground below. There was also a footprint nearby, which would match the shoes that investigators believed belonged to the killer. Also, there were broken tree branches by the park fence. It's believed that the killer entered the home sometime after Mikio had opened his email at around 10.38 p.m. Now, it's unlikely that anyone but Mikio checked that email because it was his works and it was password protected. The theory is, is that the intruder crept silently a few paces beyond that second floor bathroom where he entered little Ray's bedroom. Ray was fast asleep in his bunk bed when the killer made his way to the little boy. There was no blood evidence in Ray's bedroom, but there were many footprints in his room that are believed to belong to the killer and Mikio. The evidence suggests that Mikio had heard a struggle in Ray's room and ran up those stairs from his main floor office where he was on his home computer. In Ray's room, he's confronted by the killer who had entered the family home armed with a sashimi knife. Police interviewed witnesses who just happened to be walking in the park behind the Miyazawa's house at around the same time that Mikio was checking his work email at 10.38. And they would say that they heard the sounds of an argument coming from inside the home. Police believe that a struggle had started inside Ray's room because of those footprints left behind. It was suggested that the battle was taken out of Ray's room into the hallway where Mikio was fighting for his life and his family. He was slashed with a knife on his hands and arms. Those are believed to be defensive wounds. He was also stabbed in the chest. The attacker was so vicious that he plunged the knife into Mikio's head. During autopsy, a piece of that sashimi knife would be found embedded in Mikio's skull. Haruko, Mikio's mother-in-law, would later tell police that she'd heard a loud thud at around 11.30 that night. Remember, she lived next door. Police believe the noise she heard was the killer shoving Mikio down the stairs where Haruko would ultimately find his body the next morning. After brutally murdering Ray and Mikio, Yusuko and Nina were targeted next. It's unclear if the killer somehow knew that Yusuko and her eight-year-old daughter, Nina, were sleeping upstairs in the attic, or if he saw the pull downstairs and followed them up, and that's where he found mother and daughter asleep on the attic futon. And just to be really clear, the space that the mother and daughter were sleeping in was like a converted attic. So you can imagine those little pull-down stairs that can also fold away into the ceiling. 
If you'll recall, I mentioned that Haruko found her daughter and granddaughter's bodies the following morning at the top of the second floor staircase, not at the bottom of those pull-down stairs that led to the attic. Based on blood evidence found on the futon up in the attic where Yasuko and Nino were sleeping, it's believed that the killer crept upstairs with the sashimi knife. He then began stabbing mother and daughter around the face and neck. At some point, he left Yasuko and Nina in the attic. Based on a bloody tissue that had been found by the futon, it is believed that Yasuko had tried to staunch her daughter's wounds with that tissue. It would make sense that she believed that the killer had fled, and so she carried her daughter down those pull-down stairs trying to get help. And that's when she was confronted by the killer again, near the top of the second floor staircase. The killer hadn't left the house at all. He'd only left the attic long enough to go to the downstairs kitchen to grab another knife that belonged to the Miyazawas. He then went back up the stairs and with the second knife began to viciously stab both mother and daughter to death at the top of the stairs. It was clear to investigators that when it came to the injuries that mother and daughter sustained, it was overkill. The suspect continued to stab them even after they had died. And Nina's injuries, which included being beaten as well, were the most vicious. She was eight years old. Investigators wondered if the killer was acting out a hatred against women and girls. As police processed the crime scene, a portrait of the killer began to come into focus. If this was a home invasion robbery, as many investigators believed, He'd obviously gone through their financial records, credit cards, and then dumped out the contents of Yasuko's purse and took around 150,000 yen, or 1,500 American dollars. But there was a lot more money in the house that the killer didn't take. And if it were a robbery, why would he murder the entire family? Why hang around for the next 10 hours after the murders? Why would he dump a bunch of financial records into a bathtub full of water? After murdering four people, what kind of person has a voracious appetite to stick around and eat ice cream from the family's freezer and melon from the family's kitchen, to take the time to make himself tea, rifle through the cupboards? The killer also used sanitary napkins to dress a wound he no doubt sustained on his hand during the stabbing. There's also evidence that he put a Band-Aid on it. During the hours that he would stay in the home, he also perused websites that were bookmarked on the family's home computer. Another bizarre aspect to the, the case was uh, the perpetrator seems to have remained in the house for something like two to 10 hours, hanging out after he did this and consuming things like ice cream, using the uh, internet, using the toilet, etc., and um, just taking it easy before deciding to <coughs> leave in the morning of the 31st of December. And at some point, the killer felt comfortable enough to not only have a bowel movement in their toilet, but he didn't flush. To me, this is a lot of many levels. His arrogance. He wasn't concerned about leaving his DNA and fingerprints everywhere. But the bowel movement and not flushing feels like a move to not only shock police, who of course would process the fecal matter and find out that the killer had last eaten string beans and sesame seeds the day before. But also, I read it as a big fuck you to the family and to the law enforcement working the case. It feels like he would have loved to have been there when investigators saw what he'd done to the family and what he left behind in the toilet for them to find. 
why the person would stay stay there after that 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 have to that has to have some significance why after the crimes were committed and and apparently he checked some information about a local theater group or something on the computer after you're logging onto the computer uh, and not being not caring at all that he left uh, evidence you know in the toilet not even bothering to flush the toilet so this nonchalance that this stone cold killer seems to have exhibited is uh, just something beyond the pale. So yeah, it's it's something that um, I'm just at a loss to to fathom. There's evidence that the killer also took a nap on the family sofa before he left wearing some of Mikio's clothes. And here's the thing. With all that time that he was there after the murders, why did he leave behind his bloody clothes? A hat, his fanny pack, two black handkerchiefs, and gloves that he never used during the course of the murders. He also left behind the sashimi knife that he brought with him to the Miyazawa house that night. And you might be thinking, what an idiot. He left behind all that evidence, and yet it's been nearly 22 years. And despite having the killer's fingerprints and DNA, they haven't been able to find him. Over all this time, there have been no DNA hits in any police databases. Using the evidence that he left behind, police have been able to put together a profile of the killer. According to a police flyer, they believe that the perpetrator was relatively young, between 15 to 35 years old, based on the style of clothing that he was wearing and because of the physicality required to scale not just the park fence, but to climb a tree up to the second floor of the bathroom window. They also believe that the killer had a slim build, The fanny pack he'd left behind was cinched to a waist size that would have been between 70 and 75 centimeters, or like a 30-inch waist in the United States. Detectives also detected the scent of Dracar Noir cologne on the murderer's clothing. On the day of the murders, an eyewitness would report seeing a strange-looking man near the Miyazawa's home wearing the items the killer had left behind. The gray woven yarn hat with a black line, the fanny pack, a multicolored scarf, a black Uniqlo jacket, black gloves, a long sleeve t-shirt, and the white Slazenger shoes. But the witness couldn't describe his physical features, what he looked like. It would later be determined that the sashimi knife the killer had brought with him to the Miyazawa's home was purchased in a nearby market days before the murders. But again, the buyer of that knife has never been identified. It's also theorized that the killer wrapped the knife in one of those black handkerchiefs at some point before entering the home. Investigators would also chase down where the killer's clothes had been purchased in the Kanagawa prefecture, which is about an hour away from where the Miyazawas lived. Hunting down all the clothes that the killer had worn to the Miyazawas that night did give insights into the killer, but it also led to dead ends. For example, the sweatshirt he left was only manufactured and sold 130 times, but officers have only been able to track down 12 owners. Another unusual detail about the clothes. Police would say that the way that the killer's clothes had been washed was not a common method of washing clothes in Japan and could indicate that the killer was a foreign national. Even though they haven't been able to identify the killer through DNA, they have been able to isolate a few more clues as to his identity. 
Forensic investigators were able to put together a genetic makeup of the killer's mother and father through the DNA evidence he left behind. So they believed that the killer could potentially be mixed race, most likely of Korean or Chinese heritage, based on the mitochondrial DNA analysis. They think that the killer's mother had an ancestor originating from Southern Europe, specifically the Mediterranean area, possibly around the Adriatic Sea. Based on his DNA, the killer's father carried a genetic marker that is present in one of every five or so Koreans, one in every 10 Chinese, and one out of every 13 Japanese. I asked Tim to help make sense of what this means. According to the DNA that they found of the suspect, his father is East Asian descent and his mother somewhere along the line had some European descent. Could you describe what that means in the culture that there's mostly Japanese people that live in Japan, right? Like, what does right. this mean? I would say it's, uh, it's most likely that uh, he may be from elsewhere in East Asia uh, or elsewhere overseas. It's not impossible that he's, he's of course, from Japan. Tw even 20 years ago, there were more and more uh, people of mixed background in, in Japan. But as you mentioned, it's uh, still a fairly uh, homogenous society. That's not to say that uh, minority groups like uh, Koreans, uh, people of Korean background are, do live in Japan and they're large communities too. And uh, there are people of, um, you know, they're foreigners like myself and other individuals who don't have Japanese roots. However, by and large, it seems that the perpetrator could have been, uh, you know, born outside Japan. Uh, I'm not sure about the Korean angle. Uh, again, there are many Koreans living in Japan. Which brings us to other theories about the killer's identity. The distinctive footprints the killer left behind were analyzed, and it was determined that the shoes that he was wearing were most likely made in Korea in a size that was never sold in Japan which bolstered the theory that the killer was a South Korean citizen. Remember when I mentioned earlier that investigators had been able to track down that the killer had bought the clothes that he'd left behind and that they'd been purchased in the Kanagawa prefecture? And I'd also described them as having been washed in a style that wasn't common to the Japanese norm. Apparently what that means is, is that the clothing was forensically analyzed and it was determined that they had been washed in a mineral-rich hard water, which is found in South Korea but is uncommon in Japan. More Murder Chronicles after the break. Now, as I mentioned, I wasn't able to get an interview with investigators on this case. But according to a piece in ABC.net, quote, investigative journalist Fumia Ichihashi has spent years researching the case and wrote a book concluding the killer was a former South Korean army soldier turned killer for hire. He believes one of the killer's motivating factors was an attempt to steal compensation money paid to the family over the expansion of the nearby park, end quote. The municipal authorities had paid families up to 100 million yen, that's nearly 700,000 U.S. dollars, to move. But was the murder of four people really motivated by money? The killer didn't steal much from the Miyazawas, and this theory has ultimately not moved the investigation forward toward the identity or apprehension of any suspect. Which brings us to another theory, which was based on that fanny pack that was left behind. Allegedly, inside one of the pockets, they found sand. When the traces of sand were forensically analyzed, it was said that the sand came from the Nevada desert. More specifically, 
the area of Edwards Air Force Base in California. Is it possible that the murderer could be an American soldier or contract worker? Currently, there are 50,000 U.S. military personnel stationed in Japan. That is a is an interesting piece of evidence uh, that the sand they found was apparently from Nevada around Edwards Air Force Base or something like that, uh, which could suggest that the perpetrator was part of the U.S. military. As you know, there are many U.S. military bases in Japan. It's a major forward a deployment zone for U.S. forces. There are many, many crimes, accidents, and other incidents involving U.S. military personnel in Japan and also civilians who work at those bases in Japan. Also puzzling is the fact that uh, they found traces or parts of bird droppings and parts of trees in one of the pockets. Very strange, like uh, why would someone keep those things in a pocket? But just as strange as leaving behind all that evidence, like... Uh, Things like the hat, the backpack, or fanny pack, or whatnot. A very unusual way of going about this crime. And so, looking at the at the at the DNA, looking at that uh, sand evidence, there is a suggestion that um, could be a, for, a foreign individual, possibly serving in, in U.S. forces, who has spent time at a base at, in Nevada. Uh, there's no direct evidence, of course, but it's it's certainly puzzling. From Tokyo, it would have been really easy for a U.S. soldier or contractor to get to the Miyazawa home by taking multiple trains. Another shocking clue that so far hasn't led investigators any closer to finding the killer, but has definitely fueled more speculation and unsubstantiated theories. After nearly 22 years, wouldn't investigators have uncovered a link to a U.S. soldier or contractor if they were in some way connected to the Miyazawa family by now? Or was murdering the Miyazawa family the result of a whacked-out grudge, as some detectives believe? Apparently, in the days following the murders, a witness would come forward claiming that a week before the murders, Mikio had several verbal altercations with some teenage skateboarders who he was frustrated with for making too much noise. So if you'll recall, their home was literally right next to the skate park. And this park attracted a lot of teens who would be out all hours of the night. Sometimes it got rowdy. Another witness would come forward saying they'd seen Mikio get into a similar verbal altercation with a local biker gang who were hanging out at the park too. Murdering Mikio over a grudge because he asked a few teen skateboarders to be mindful of their noise level seems like a stretch. And it doesn't explain why, if it were a grudge against Mikio, why would they kill Yasuko and the children? December 30th, 2022 will mark 22 years since the Miyazawa murders. And Tim says that this date is always tough on the family and the community. If you live in Tokyo, you are familiar with the wanted posters related to this crime because they are common uh, sites even today. As we see some of these uh, anniversaries uh, tick by, sadly, we see the police going out. Uh, sometimes Tokyo police uh, go to local train stations where there are tons of commuters coming out and they hand out flyers. And, you know, it's the anniversary of uh, of this crime. Does this jog your memory at all back It's as, as you get farther and farther away in time? From uh, the crime itself, it's harder and harder, of course, for people to to remember anything like they may have someone they may have seen on the night of December 30th, 2000. And unfortunately, there's no surveillance 
uh, video in that area at the time, apparently. And so um, all there is to go by <clears throat> is this DNA evidence and the, the articles of clothing that were left behind and any theories that uh, that may have been you know developed, like uh, perhaps the killer had a grudge against the family for some reason. According to a report in Asahi.com, more than 282,000 police officers have been assigned to this investigation and still no suspect in the murders of Mikio, Yasuko, Nina, and Ray. There have been more than 15,000 tips from the public. They have the perpetrator's DNA and fingerprints, and still the case has yet to be solved. On top of that, they still haven't uncovered a motive for the brutal murders. The Metropolitan Police Department says they've compared the fingerprints with millions of prints and they still have come up empty. And you might be wondering, like I was, how Japan handles DNA collection. If this case happened in the U.S., you know there'd be an investigative genetic genealogist all over this case. I know that there are strong privacy concerns about even things like government-issued ID numbers in Japan. For example, uh, a government-issued ID number that gives you access to government services, uh, including social security. Money in Canada has been around for as long as I've been alive, and it's not a big deal. Everyone has one. You Once you're old enough to uh, get a job or something like that, you register for one of these numbers. In Japan, such a system only was introduced um, within the last 20 years, and it was a big controversy. And people didn't want to join. They called it my number. So people didn't want to have my number. They didn't want to sign up. Entire municipalities did not sign up for this thing. So when you have my number, it gives you access to, say, you know, tax services or, uh, you know, health healthcare benefits, this kind of thing, to, to smooth the uh, bureaucratic uh, process there. So in that respect, I, I would uh, imagine there are extremely strong uh, privacy concerns about, um, you know, voluntarily offering your, your DNA profile to law enforcement. That being said, DNA-based services are becoming more popular now. For example, if you want to learn about your, your heritage or whether you may be susceptible to, you know, various illnesses, those kinds of services are are, uh, are now getting uh, more and more popular in Japan. So people are doing like the 23andMe because they're curious and, and all of that. Because you yeah, know, I, I think an investigative genetic genealogy would be a way to solve this, but it's only as good as the database that armchair detectives or investigative genetic genealogists can do. If they don't have a huge database, they're not going to be able to. Precisely. I, I'm sure you're aware of uh, several high profile crimes in the United States that have been solved with these kinds of services, right? Uh, my, To my knowledge, that has not happened in Japan because those services would be you know, in their infancy and users are just not keen on doing it. And the other aspect is that, as we mentioned before, Japan is still fairly homogenous, broadly speaking. So you're not going to get a whole lot of information when you do one of these tests if you're Japanese. You're going to show, oh, gee, you're like 98% Japanese. Okay, so what? Or, okay, maybe you're like 10% Okinawan, which has a perhaps of a, a slightly different, um, you know, genetic makeup. Uh, I'm not an expert on that, of course, but uh, that would be my impression. Uh, you're not going to get, uh, by and large, uh, cases, surprise cases, like there was that TV show, oh, you know, part of your ancestry can be traced back to Africa or, or elsewhere in the world. So that's part of the reason why they haven't taken off as much as uh, the United States. Yeah, and that's probably why they haven't figured out who this, this person is. 
But what would be amazing is if they could come up with a composite sketch of the killer based on genetic phenotyping. Even though this isn't an exact science, and often features can be generic, it would be something tangible. In an interview with Nippon.com, Setsuko Miyazawa, Mikio's mom, said that she feels like there's been no progress since the beginning. She is calling on the continued preservation of the home. She doesn't want the tragedy to fall into oblivion with the destruction of the home. One can imagine that the Miyazawa home represents many things to the family, including law enforcement's accountability to finally solve the case and bring some resolution to the family and justice for the Miyazawas. I think the last I heard was um, about this case in the news was that there was a movement uh, or the police wanted to demolish the home. This was uh, three, four years ago now uh, because it was dilapidated. But the sister of, uh, of the mother who was victimized was opposed to that. And she wanted to preserve the home to uh, maintain it as a place where you could perhaps fully understand uh, what happened. And I've seen video of um, going into the home and everything was boxed up here and there. Not a big home by North American standards whatsoever. And in a, in a place that uh, was somewhat isolated by, by the river, as we talked about before. Uh, so it's, it's hard to believe that this was just a, a totally random killing. The house has been empty this entire time? That's my understanding. Yeah, the house has stood empty. Because with another anniversary looming, the pressure on these investigators never really goes away. For sure, these uh, these uh, investigators have been uh, wearing out the shoe leather, as you've said, uh, but uh, they've come up with remarkably little over uh, 21 years now. And um, I, I'm sure they feel tremendous pressure by the public, by the government, especially when there's an anniversary coming up. And uh, uh, I can't see how they're going to be, there will be any breaks in the story unless something comes out of the blue that no one has expected so far. Detective Mitsuko Matsumori worked on the case for 16 years. When she retired, she still wasn't able to just walk away from the case or the family. Every year to this day gives the gift of what's called a Daruma doll to Mikio's mom, Setsuko. Apparently one eye on the doll is left blank. And Setsuko and Detective Matsumori have promised each other to fill in the blank eyes when police finally catch the person responsible for murdering her son and his entire family. Right now, 35 detectives are still working on this case. And although the killer has thus far eluded the police, every rock, even down to a little stone statue found by the river near the Miyazawa's home has been scrutinized pondered for deeper significance. According to the police flyer that has been distributed on the case, the police are looking for information regarding an Ojizo-san. That's something that was left near the Miyazawa's home and that they feel might have some significance. The Ojizo-san is a stone Buddhist statue that was found 100 days after the murders on the opposite side of the Senkawa River. Remember, that was near the family home. So police want to know if it was placed there by someone with good intentions or if it was placed there by the killer or someone close to the killer. An Ojizo-san is a deity fondly loved by Japanese people. The primary role of a Jizo is to protect children and their souls if they pass away. Some believe that the soul of children who died before their parents cannot cross the river to the afterlife. 
They remain on the side of the river, having to pile stones as an act of penance. Finding out who put the statue near the Miyazawa's home by the river could be significant to the case. But Tim wonders, after so many years of fruitless pursuits, maybe it's time to rethink the investigation. I think that the police, I'm pretty disappointed at their progress, the uh, Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department. I'm sure it's it's an impossible task, Uh, but after so many years to have so few results and to be only pleading for uh, public assistance right now, you think that you've heard of so many cases in which, oh, they got DNA evidence, and so they cracked the case now after, you know, 30 years or something like that. Well, they had, in this case, it was DNA evidence from the get-go. I'm not sure how high quality it was, but um, uh, there was a lot of evidence. Uh, the, and, the, and the perpetrator stayed on the scene of the crime for a long time. Uh, he was not seen by anyone, but they like left clothing, he left DNA evidence, as I said, and 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 yet we have no suspects, no arrests, which, to to my mind, suggests. Uh, it, it, of course, it's it's a very very difficult thing, but the, they seem to be going about it the wrong way. And I say that because sometimes there are institutional ways of doing things in Japan, as I mentioned the press club before, which are out of step with uh, the way things are done overseas. I'm not saying they're all bad, but sometimes it's worthwhile to re-examine those old institutional ways of doing things and, and asking yourself, are we really doing the, the most that we can here? Are there other ways of looking at this problem now that we have modern technology or uh, new resources that we can use and bring to bear on this, this very diabolical crime? There's a reward of 20 million yen that's a little over 138,000 US dollars for information leading to an arrest. The number to call is 813-3432-0110. And if you have a case you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at themurderchronicles at cavalrymedia.com. Thank you for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.